Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I can say in my relationship with Ken, when you're together with somebody as a couple for 30 plus years, you hit bumps in the road. This is Tom Boulay. He and his husband, Ken, are in their late 50s. They met in San Francisco in the early 90s. We learned long ago that arguing was not going to solve those bumps in the road, but instead going back to what we were grounded in would. And that was to remind ourselves we like each other and we're friends. And whatever's in front of us is not bigger than that. Tom says he knew pretty much right away that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with Ken. Ken was going through a divorce with his wife, and his job brought him to the Bay Area frequently. They had a local friend in common and hung out a few times. After a few months, he called to visit, and they were busy, so they called me to ask if I would babysit him, and I said I would gladly do that. And he never went back and visited them again. Ken had the type of upbeat and positive energy that Tom was drawn to. And he was a great father to his two kids, ages five and six, from his previous marriage. Tom adored Ken's kids, both of whom were deaf. He even learned sign language to communicate with them and build a relationship. After a few years, they decided it would be a joy to grow their family through adoption. They hit a couple of roadblocks, but eventually they received a call from their adoption lawyer saying there was a baby soon to be born who needed a home. And we spent the evening talking about it. And we very much believe life, the universe, spirituality brings things to you that you ask for. And we decided we should embrace this opportunity and go forward. So we called him back and said, let's do it. Complications at the hospital made for a rough start for baby Matthew, but the challenges didn't end there. Matthew had severe behavioral problems. Between the therapists, the schools, and the doctors, it became clear to Tom and Ken that they were not dealing with an ordinary kid. He was angry. He destroyed things. He made people afraid. But he was their son, and they left no stone unturned to get him the treatment and care he needed. Until one day, the unthinkable happened. And he turned around, he grabbed me in a headlock with his left arm and started stabbing me. He stabbed me in the back of the head, behind the ears, in the abdomen, and probably well into it, 10 or more stabs. Ken then screamed out, Tom, he's trying to kill us. And that took me out of my shock. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, I've got to do something here. Today on the show, part one of a two-part series with devoted parents Tom Boulay and Ken Cole, whose son Matthew stabbed them a combined 31 times. 
We discuss their extraordinary physical recovery, but also their mental and spiritual journey as they face the kind of bumps that most of us would regard as giant boulders. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I sat down with Tom and Ken separately to get each person's take on the stabbing. They both believe in calling it what it was. Not the attack, not the incident, but the stabbing. The facts of the story remain the same with both of them, but they experienced parenting a child with mental illness quite differently. Different people with different coping strategies, like most couples and most parents. There is no right or wrong here. If you are a parent whose child struggles with mental health, know that you are not alone and reach out, ask for help and connection. I hope you find as much wisdom as I did in the reflections from Tom and Ken on love, meaning, purpose, and survival. And so we begin with Tom Boulay. We met the mother over the phone, and then we flew her to Los Angeles to have some medical tests done and make sure that the baby was in good health. Then we flew her back to where she lived, which was Wisconsin. And then she came back four weeks before delivery and we paid for an apartment for her to stay in with her aunt and another child that she had, who was about a year old at the time. And then we did the delivery and she flew home and we've never heard from her since. Wow. And a baby boy was born on that day and you decide to name him Matthew. Yes, we'd already decided on the name Matthew Ryan Call Boulay, which is Matthew and Ryan or Matthew and Ryan Call is Ken's last name, Boulay is mine. And we put the call into his middle name because we didn't want him to have a hyphenated last name. We decided his life would be complicated enough back in 1996 with two gay parents of Caucasian descent and he was a half black, half Caucasian child. So he was visually different and he had two fathers and we just decided simplicity was a better approach. What was Matthew like growing up as a baby coming home in sort of those early toddler years? He had a rough beginning at the hospital. He was born in a C-section procedure. And uh, I think a nurse punctured his lung in suctioning fluid out And he went into some breathing distress. He went into the ICU. They monitored him overnight. We came back the next day and they said that his breathing was improving and they were going to discharge him. So they discharged him. We brought him home and two or three hours later, he was turning purple. And we called the pediatrician and he said, take him back to the hospital. So we got in the car and we took him back to the hospital. They didn't know what was wrong. That evening, they told us it could take another day to figure it out and that we should go home and just wait until tomorrow. The first few days and weeks are really difficult for you as new parents. And Matthew's in the hospital. What happens next? We brought him back to the hospital at our doctor's advice, and they worked on him for numerous hours and finally said there were four 
possible diagnoses, but they wouldn't know until they had more time with him. This was late in the evening, early December 1996. So we went home at their advice. They offered us a room in the hospital, and we thought we'd sleep better at home. The four things that they said it could be, one was a congenital heart issue that could require lifelong support. One was a kidney issue that could require lifelong support. One had something to do with the brain, I don't recall. And the last was it could be a punctured lung, which was the least difficult of the four. We didn't know if he was going to die or be on lifelong medical care or what. It was devastating, nerve-wracking, and scary. The next morning, we went to the hospital, and the doctor said he thought it was a punctured lung and that he just needed a few days to heal. And they asked us not to stay in the ICU area, that there was nothing we could do. So we would go back and forth and visit, but we didn't stay day and night. On the fifth day, a doctor called Ken at home and said, Mr. Call, I want to tell you that Matthew is fine. And Ken asked, why are you calling to tell me that he's fine? And the doctor said, unfortunately, one of our nurses passed out and dropped him on the floor from five feet up, putting him back into the incubator onto his back and head. And he's fine. We naturally didn't think that he was fine necessarily. And we rushed to the hospital and talked with the doctors about it. They committed to doing a battery of tests to make sure that everything was okay. They did. Nothing showed up in those tests. That was alarming. And they kept him there to monitor for five more days. On day 10, they released him. We picked him up and brought him home. So it was a very tumultuous beginning to life. And I don't know how much the beginning of life influences you through the rest of your life. Nobody can really say that, but it was difficult. Yeah, a traumatic, traumatic beginning. You've said he was an easy baby. Yeah, the first year, year and a half was very easy. He stayed on his schedule pretty well, ate well, slept well, seemed to be quite happy. It was, it was very nice. So after that rough beginning, some sort of a sweet period, if you will. Yes, a smooth time to really enjoy. Eventually into sort of toddler, adolescence, what's happening and sort of how is he progressing as a young boy? Before or near the age of two, we could see some developmental delays. His speech was delayed. He had very few words. He also didn't play with toys a lot. He just didn't have much interest. We took him to the doctor to see what the doctor thought about the speech. And the doctor suggested we go see a speech therapist, uh, which we booked an appointment to do. And before we left the doctor's office, the doctor said, I have to be honest with you, Tom, kids like this oftentimes have trouble in school. And I remember being a bit annoyed by that statement because I don't like labeling people. And to call him kids like this really upset me. And I thought, he's not kids like anyone. He's Matthew. And we're going to do what we can to do our best to help him and see what he needs. And hopefully he won't have trouble in school. Anyway, we went and saw a speech therapist. And uh, I took him to that appointment. And I was probably in her office for 10 minutes. He did nothing but dump toys out of toy chests. He wouldn't sit to play. He had no real focus or attention. And after about 10 minutes, she looked at me and said, I think he's autistic. I was crushed by that and a bit devastated by her lack of good bedside manner to convey a message like that in a very abrupt manner. Yeah. 
I was more upset with her than I was about what she had to say, I think. Interesting. So I thanked her. We went home and I said, we'll get a speech therapist. And it's not going to be her because I don't like her. Because <laughs> she sucks. Yeah, she sucks. And so <laughs> we took him to someone else and he was in speech therapy for several years. We put him into daycare at around two years old. And we had a difficult time in daycare because he didn't follow the rules. And at two years old, there's a lot of rules to follow. He wouldn't lay down for naps when they wanted him to take naps. He was verbal, verbally reluctant to comply with what he was being told to do. So we got thrown out of multiple daycare places. And I don't like to tell the stories by saying we got thrown out of daycare places. <laughs> the way I phrase it is, we were invited to find different placements on numerous occasions. So so we went and found other placements and it became increasingly difficult. One place he was in for 30 days and we finally decided we had to find some other path to get help, that this wasn't a normal, typically developing person. And these were all behavioral issues? All behavioral issues, yes. So... Someone informed us that LA Unified School District had early childhood intervention programs that we could look into. We connected to Los Angeles Unified School District and found a preschool, pre-kindergarten care starting at age three that he could go into in an elementary school that had behavioral specialists who could help with what he was going through. So we enrolled him in that, and he did very well in there. I remember the teacher, who's still a friend, asking me one day when I dropped him off, he wants to play inside the box. Are you okay with him playing inside the box? I said, if he's happy and thriving and you think he's getting something out of it, then let him play inside the box. Of course, do. I trust you. The sandbox? No, a box, a cardboard box. Oh, I'm like, He wanted to play box? in cardboard boxes. Oh. <laughs> he didn't want to socialize with other kids. Oh, got it. He didn't really want to play with the toys. He just kind of wanted to yeah. hang out in the box. Yeah. We weren't having behavioral issues of the same kind at home. We, he was happy at home, but he wouldn't play with toys. He would go sit in his room in the dark and just hang out instead of going in and playing with toys like other children did. Well, you know, what I'm hearing is you guys are really attentive, early intervention, and I imagine not having the genetic history is a disadvantage. It is. We had a little bit of history from the mother, but not a lot. Matthew's mother, Joy, was only 21 when she had Matthew. He was her fourth pregnancy, and her mom was already taking care of one of the babies. She said she had a hard time adopting him because he was biracial. They did try and contact her when Matthew was around 15, but she was in prison, and then she disappeared. And no information about the father. She claimed he was an unknown father. And we had his legal rights rescinded, which was another part of the adoption process. But she didn't share any information about him, and we had very little information about her. She didn't send prenatal records ever. We never were able to get them. Yeah. I don't even know that there were any prenatal records looking back. And as I look at who she was at the time looking back, I see she actually had a lot of challenges herself. Yeah. Yeah, because I imagine there's many pieces of the puzzle that were there, but they didn't exist to you. And it was very fast that the adoption took place. So we didn't have time to go into all of that. Yeah. We just said, let's go. Yeah. We're going to take in this baby and love him. Yes. Yeah. 
In his adolescent years, Tom and Ken continued to seek out solutions for Matthew to get the help he needed, which meant lots of programs, speech therapy, and appointments. Ken stopped working and decided to stay at home full-time to make it all work. Matthew was enrolled in special education programs through sixth grade, and then in seventh grade, a connection allowed them to try a small private school for the summer. He did well there. The teacher liked him. He had learned by that point to hold in his frustrations until Ken picked him up after school, which made for a hard ride home, but it was manageable. I would describe him in preteen and teen years as very oppositional, always wanting to respond in a way that he would think was opposite of what we would want. And so I'd describe it as oppositional. Was he violent or how was the behavior manifesting that was causing the disruption and the concern? He was not physically violent by that point. I do remember one preschool camp counselor telling me that he was afraid of him. He was about a six foot two tall man. And he was about, Matthew was about five years old at the time. And I thought, okay, he's kicking, yes, but, and screaming. Yeah, but that's but normal at for that age, rate, yeah. He was afraid. We changed camps. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were always places willing to take him. That was the part that was encouraging. Yeah. So the behaviors in high school... He got through the school days very well, but he was angry. I think angry is the best way to describe it a lot of the time. Angry at other people. He never made friends, or he never let us know he has friends. But he was never social outside of school, really. So a bit oppositional, not violent or threatening to people. That's it. Did he ever receive a mental health diagnosis growing up? Yes, multiple. At different stages from different doctors. We had three different psychiatrists we saw over the course of time. One at age three, one at age seven or ten, something like that, and another one around age 15 or 16. He had therapists for many years. He had school therapists. We had private therapists all through junior high and high school. Got it. And what were the diagnoses? Early on, autism, later retracted by another doctor saying not autism. And there weren't really a whole lot of other diagnoses. There were some medications given to help with behavior impulsivity, but we never got to another diagnosis. And I think some of that is many times they don't do diagnoses such as bipolar or other things until someone is a bit older correct, into their teen years or, yep. or beyond. Yeah, so, correct. and I, I was never focused on diagnosis. I was focused on Treatment. treatment. What are we doing to get him to the best place possible? Yeah. Who was Matthew at his best growing up? There were many good days and good moments. And I'd say most were good days and good moments in most ways. He was happy as a child much of the time. And so when we tell this story, I don't want to lose sight of that fact. And that fact comforts me to this day. We had a second house for a period of time in a town, a small town, in the woods a few hours away and we would go away to there and he was very happy there because it was peaceful and calm. And when he was in peaceful and calm, he was centered and thriving. So that was a great place to have for the time we had it. He enjoyed taking Taekwondo and becoming a black belt. He did that in a record amount of time, really. 
one of the things that was a great strength of his that I learned over the years was if he put his own personal focus and intent to it, he could do anything. He was amazing at accomplishing what he set out to do. So if you could find what he was interested in, engaged around, he would do it. And you have this backyard with a pool and you showed me the trampoline he used to jump on and I'm glad you find comfort and all of the good in those years. Thank you. Um, He loved to swim and he loved jumping on the trampoline. He did it every day and we still have it. Neighbors, kids come over and jump on it and I'll confess sometimes I do too. Yeah. (laughs) When we come back, Matthew returns home from college for the summer and a horrific tragedy follows. Back in a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode supports Crisis Text Line. Crisis Text Line is a free mental health texting service providing confidential crisis intervention via SMS messaging, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can learn more on their website at crisistextline.org. Four years ago, you survived the unimaginable. I'm curious where you and Ken were in your life and where Matthew was. Matthew was at home for the summer from his junior year of college. He was a 3.4 GPA student at Gonzaga University in Washington State. Uh, He had been away for three years. We had discussed long before he went away whether he could successfully go away or not. And because I knew if he put his mind to something, he could accomplish it. Both Ken and I were very supportive of him going, and he did very well. He was frustrated at times. He would call in the middle of the night screaming about anger and frustration with what certain people had done, but we would listen and be a sounding board, and that was all okay because he was managing himself pretty well through the whole three years. I would say Ken and I were in a great place. We both were working. We liked our jobs. We were empty nesters and enjoying just having the privacy of having gotten past spending the time and energy that we did to get to where we were at that point in life. Yeah. And it sounds like he's in college. He's a bright, intelligent kid. Yeah. I imagine there's some peace and comfort that you had gotten to that place. Very much so. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. For what you're comfortable sharing, what do you remember about the day of the assault and the sequence of events. A friend who lives across the street had visited for a bit prior to our going to bed. She had gone home after Matthew had come home from his job where he worked in a movie theater, collecting tickets and doing different jobs. Matthew came home around 9.30. We went to bed at around typical time, 10, 10.30, and he would stay up late. Why wouldn't you? You're 20 years old, 21 years old. At around one in the morning, he came into our bedroom and stood over the bed and started screaming, and it woke me up. Ken was sleeping through it still, 
And I don't remember what he was screaming about. He was just in a rage. He then turned around and went back to his room and shut the door. I decided to go talk to him in his room. So I got up. I shook Ken to see if he could come help me because I was a bit concerned that he was so worked up. But Ken didn't wake up and I decided to go talk to him myself. And this was something that had happened one month earlier. And when it happened one month earlier, I didn't go talk to him that night. I waited till the next morning. And the next morning I told him, you can't come in our room like this. You can't try to create this fearful environment for us. If you do it again, we're going to send you back to Washington and you can live in your apartment there till school begins. So here we are a month later and he came in and did it again. I decided, well, I will, I'm going to go address this now. I went to his room. The door was locked. I knocked and told him to open it. And he was stirring around in the room. I remember hearing him just rustling around for lack of a better term. And he finally opened the door I went in and told him this was not acceptable to us and that as we had talked about, we were going to send him back to Washington and we would talk to him about it more in the morning. I then went into his bathroom to see if he had punched any walls because he had punched walls in the past. He had harmed inanimate objects, but never threatened living objects. And I was okay with that in general. You know, it wasn't harming a person. So it's a material object that can be repaired. And we can move on if he can get past what his anxieties are. I went into the bathroom and he followed me in and he had punched the wall. And I turned back around to go out of the room and said to him and looked him in the eye and said, I'm going back to bed and we'll talk about this tomorrow. I went to walk past him and he grabbed me when I passed him. He turned around and he grabbed me in a headlock with his left arm and started stabbing me. At that point, I didn't know he was stabbing me. I thought he was punching me because I didn't know he had a knife in his hand. It was a short three-inch knife. It was concealed, and I didn't know I was being stabbed. And he dragged me, sort of pushed me forward out of the bathroom and into the bedroom and continued to stab me. And I remember on the third, what I thought was a punch, seeing a lot of blood fly out. And I thought that was really strange because I didn't even realize I was being stabbed even at that point in time. And I had a very dark robe on, so I couldn't see blood on the robe. I just saw some blood fly. He stabbed me in the back of the head, behind the ears, in the abdomen, and probably uh, well into it, 10 or more stabs. Ken came in the room. He had heard the scuffle, and he came in the room, and he saw what was happening and screamed out, Matthew, why are you doing this? And he tried to grab the knife from Matthew's hand with Matthew having his hand up in the air. They got into a struggle and Matthew started stabbing Ken in the arm and ultimately in the chest and punctured his lung. And Ken knew he couldn't overtake him. Matthew was a black belt in Taekwondo and we were 57 years old at the time in good shape, but not capable of taking on a, an enraged 21-year-old black belt. Ken then screamed out, Tom, he's trying to kill us. And that took me out of my shock. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, I've got to do something here. And right at that time, Ken fled the room. He knew he had to get out of there, and he went to flee out the door to get help. And Matthew let me go. He left the room. I think I collapsed. I'm not sure. 
but he left. And somehow, what I don't remember is how I got back to my own bedroom, but I got back to my own bedroom and I remember grabbing my phone off the night table and calling 911. I remember the phone dropping out of my hand because I could see the blood all over it. And my thinking, I hope the keypad works when I finally get this in my hand. And I picked it up and dialed 911 again. And the call went through. At that point, I could remember seeing helicopter lights shining through the windows from up above. And I could hear noise outside, which made me think the police were there. I got through to 911 and I said, this is Tom Boulay. And I gave my address and I said, I need help. And the operator's response was, we know who you are. We know where you are. This is the third call we've had from your residence this evening. And I remember thinking, well, who else would have called? There's nobody in the house. It doesn't make sense to me. I didn't realize, and I learned later from the police, Matthew had called to say he was killing us. He had called several people, right? Yes. Matthew had called the police, 911, and told them that he was killing us. And I don't know exactly when he called. He emailed his older sister and said he was killing us. She got that email in the morning and was horrified and didn't know what to do. And he emailed his therapist to say he was killing us. So the operator said, I know who you are, where you are. We're, they're working on getting in the house. By that point, Matthew had finished circling over Ken. Ken had collapsed in the living room trying to get out. He couldn't breathe. And he was bleeding everywhere. And Matthew had circled over him with the phone in his hand saying nasty things about him. And Ken says he sat there thinking, I have to play dead. I have to play dead. And Matthew left him and came back to the bedroom where I was. Ken then was able to get himself up and get to the door and open it, which is how the police got in. Um, they told him to run across the street, and he says he doesn't know how. They expected him to run. He couldn't breathe, but somehow he got across the street with their help. Matthew had come back into our bedroom. One of the dogs was in there, and he was licking up the blood. And I said to Matthew, get him out of here, put him in the backyard. And for whatever reason, Matthew took him and put him out in the backyard and then came back to the room, and I was still on the phone with 911. I don't remember what the discussion was at that point, or if I was just holding on. I think they were telling me to just stay conscious. And he kicked me in the side and slashed my neck right by my carotid artery, which he missed, barely. And I remember him turning around and walking out of the room and saying, now I can tell Dwayne I finished the job. And I remember thinking, I don't know who Dwayne is. I've never heard of a Dwayne. He doesn't have friends, really, that he talks about. So that was a mystery to me. Later, it was discovered that Dwayne was an online gaming buddy. Matthew was a big gamer, and he and Dwayne played together often. The next thing I heard was the police officer calling his name, and he walked out to the living room. And people were coming into the bedroom and wrapping blankets around me and trying to stop the bleeding. I remember going out the door on a gurney because it was bumpy going down the stairs and bumping getting into the ambulance. I remember going in and out of consciousness and then turning the lights on in the ambulance and kind of yelling at me. And I thought, they're kind of mean here because they're, they're yelling at me and I'm not doing very well. But they were trying to keep me conscious. The last thing I remember was at the hospital right before going into surgery to repair my colon and my shoulder and my ears and all the other wounds, I remember someone saying, 
can you tell us who we should contact about this incident? At the time, I thought, well, aren't they nice wanting to get in touch with my friends? Later, I realized they were asking, who's your next of kin so we can call and say, you might be dead. I said, call my brother. And I gave them his name. And I told them what city he lives in. And I told them where he works. And then I went into surgery. And I don't remember anything until I woke up the next morning around 9 a.m. And what what were the wounds that were inflicted on both you and Ken? What condition are you both in at this point? I had been stabbed 21 times. He essentially tried to detach my ears. He had stabbed the back of my head. That wasn't too bad. He had severed my brachial plexus nerve, which I didn't know we had brachial plexus nerves until then. And I was unable to lift my right arm at all. He had punctured my colon and that they had to surgically repair that. So they cut open my abdomen to do that. I was in very bad shape. I remember waking up and thinking, I don't really know what happened. I don't know where I've been injured, but I'm not in good shape. I'm really, really weak here. Ken was stabbed 10 times, most in his right arm where he was trying to grab the knife from Matthew, and once in his chest where his lung collapsed. He had to have surgery to repair nerve damage and close wounds on his arm. He ultimately ended up having to have four surgeries over a long period of time to help repair nerves, and currently today still has limited use of his right hand and has lost half of his bicep from an infection. I still have pain in my ears and my abdomen and my shoulder, but I can use my arm fully and I'm in a far better shape than I was four years ago. So when we spoke on the phone, you had mentioned having near-death experiences or death. Yes. What can you share with me about that? During surgery, I remember going over to the other side, for those who believe in the other side, three different times. I remember it being all white, as many people do describe. The setup was different from anything I'd ever seen or heard. I felt more like I was in a square conference room with a table in the middle and one other person on the other side in each of the three moments. And that the person on the other side of the table who was there with me was different in each of the three moments. I felt like it was a surprise arrival to them. They weren't expecting me. It was discussion about whether I should leave there or stay there. And all three times, I remember being almost like suctioned back into my body and sort of the answer being given, we're not ready for you here yet. You have more to do. Is I'm so fascinated. I mean, we could spend the whole interview talking <laughs> about this. Did they represent anyone from your past or is there even a way to explain it? Yes. In retrospect, I think it's three people who were very near and dear to me in life and who were on the other side, one being my father one being my mother, and one being a nephew. Wow. So that's now reflecting, you think, that was the representation? That's who I firmly believe it was. We were all very close. They say when you die, you expect to see people who've been important in your life there. And Ken was already here on this side, so he wasn't going to be there. So they stood in. Wow. And what do you remember about waking up? 
I remember waking up and thinking my purpose from my perspective is to help others. And I thought if I don't get better myself, I'm never going to be able to live my purpose. So I have to get better and I have to start now with the healing and focus on wellness, forgiveness, and getting to a better place. And that clarity of purpose and direction, was it almost instantaneous for you? It's the first thing I actually remember thinking Wow! when I woke up. Yeah. I'm curious before, the night before, is the physical pain, do you just go out of your body? I mean... I think I went into shock, which is why I didn't know what yeah. was going on. Yeah. And so probably from the trauma, yeah. if I had to guess. And so I, I don't know that I really knew the physical pain was there. And then when I came out of the shock, when Ken said, Tom, he's trying to kill us, I immediately went into survivor mode. And whatever I had to do to get myself out of that situation, I was going to accomplish. I didn't know how I was doing. Like I said, I didn't even know how I got back to our bedroom, but I did. Did you know Ken was okay and alive when you woke up? No. I had no idea what had happened. What had happened at all? What had happened to Ken. What had happened to Ken. It was five or six days later before I saw Ken for the first time. I was told that he was stable and in relatively good condition, given the injuries that he had sustained. I finally moved out of the ICU, I think on day six and down to the same floor where he was. And I, he was about two doors down where they're laughing and drinking and having a party. <laughs> it, it just seemed like eternity to be away and not be able to see one another after what had happened. Yeah. And what was that first time seeing him like? Filled with tears. Yeah. And just trying to understand what happened. Yeah. Uh, very emotional. Very gut-wrenching. Yeah. A lot of joy to be alive, to be able to be together. And we talked about this many times later that we were very happy that one or the other didn't die because to be left alone would have been a lot harder. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was a shared experience, but maybe fortunately in that you had each other to comfort one another. Correct. Yeah. That, that was a big plus. Yeah. What is happening with Matthew at this point? Matthew pled guilty to two charges of He went into murder. police custody willingly, right? Pretty much? Yes, he surrendered. Surrendered, With yeah. no, no struggle. Okay. The police asked Matthew if he'd ever been abused, physically, sexually, or any other way, and he responded to them, no, I didn't like the way they parented me. Wow. So... When do you eventually come home? Ken was able to go home around day 10. And I believe I was there 17 days. I had had surgery on my shoulder to implant a nerve that hopefully was going to help heal the severing of the nerve. And my colon took a lot of time to heal and for the doctors to be comfortable that I could go home. So it's clear to me that you guys, just from getting to know you a bit, that you're very social. You know, there was some pieces in the newspaper. It sounds like you're really beloved on this street and neighbors just 
think you're great people. So I would imagine in the wake of this, that community and friends and family play a part in this chapter of the journey. So what was some of the good and the love and the humanity that was shown to you too? Despite the darkness of the whole scenario, there's so many things that were so positive coming from all of this. And that's where I try to spend my time and energy reflecting and remembering. It helps me along the way. We had many friends show up in the hospital and show their support and care and love. Our neighbors gathered and put a 10-minute video tribute together for us for when we got home. They created a list of what everybody could do on what day of the week at what time in terms of anything we needed from a support perspective. They signed us up for meal train and people were signing up to bring dinner day after day after day for months. People would drop off food and want to hear about what happened and how we were. And we were very happy to talk about it and share what went on and hear the expressions of care and support. All of that was very uplifting. And while you could go into a really dark place after what happened, I like to say there was so much around us to safety net us from that. We didn't. And we had our own identities helping us there too. But the people around us made it impossible even if we'd wanted to. Yeah. It appears to be you're just wrapped in love, wrapped in love and support. That swell occupying the heavy space is also all that love and support. Yes. And it gave us opportunity to talk about it. And sharing the experience was helpful. It was very helpful to let people know what we'd been through and to see their response and their care and their love. It was very positive. Yeah. Well, as you're processing it, I imagine, yeah, the sharing of it. So beyond the friends and family and those early weeks and months of healing, what were the things that were the most helpful to you, the emotional road to recovery? Well, we got a therapist together. (laughs) She actually came to the house before we were ever able to even leave the house and started working with us at home. She was incredible. And some of the things we learned through that have stuck with me. One bigger one being we have two hats to wear, the hat of a parent and the hat of a victim of a crime. And figuring out what the emotions are around each of those very conflicting positions is important. And ultimately, I've learned to honor those emotions on all sides because they are all legitimate, real and come to the surface at different points in time in different ways. But I understand them as what they are. And when I experience one or the other in one way or another, I recognize it and I'm okay with that. That must have been so helpful because the complexity of those emotions, I imagine when you feel rage and anger or then the father-parent feels guilt, right? So I think the idea that they can coexist or you can compartmentalize them when needed would be a really freeing realization. It is. I feel like it's a very healthy place to be, to to, to able to both. acknowledge and honor both and know that they're both sane and sensible. And one or the other doesn't have to dominate my day either. And you're also, the other role is that your husband is experiencing as you are trauma and physical and also playing the husband role 
We both are. Yeah. And as parents, I think probably, I don't want to speak for all parents everywhere, but I will say we didn't always agree on everything all along the way. And we still don't, even in non-parent land. That's what the nature of couples and relationships is. There's just never 100% agreement, at least not to my knowledge. I've yet to meet a couple that proves me incorrect. (laughs) So, yes, there's the husband hat as well. And we had a lot of great conversations, especially in the first year, just talking about what happened, how we felt about it. There were things that come to mind that other parents don't think about necessarily one of them for example is we're glad it happened to us and not to somebody else because we feel like if he'd been out in the world and we missed whatever cues and clues there were and that he had attacked somebody else we would have felt like we we missed our responsibility toward him as a parent so we came to the place where we agreed we were feeling like we were better off that it happened to us and not to somebody else, which is a strange place to be. Yeah. Well, I imagine all the processing you did together. A lot. A lot. A lot. We had many people ask, are you going to move out of your house now that this has happened? And both of us agreed very quickly, we don't want to move out of our house. We love our house. And this did happen here, but it doesn't define who we are as people. And we actually have peace at home that hasn't existed in a long time. Yeah. When is the first time that you saw Matthew after the attack? At the pretrial hearing, which was probably months after the attack, I think it was early in the winter or spring of 2019, and it was in the courtroom. Was there an anticipation of that, I would imagine? Dread, anxiety, not sure what to expect, not sure what he would look like, not sure how we would respond and react emotionally. So it was a lot of unknown. And what was the reality? It was very difficult to see him in handcuffs, looking quite thin, and it was uncomfortable at times having him turn around and looking at us. It was uncomfortable getting on the witness stand and talking about what had happened. So it wasn't an enjoyable day at all. And there was a lot of emotion leading up to it because we had very different responses to how we wanted to go through the day. And uh, that caused difficulty at times, but we finally came to agreements on what we were going to do. And what did you end up doing? Ken wanted friends in the courtroom supporting him when he was testifying and they agreed to be there. I wanted privacy and they agreed to exit. Well, I'm glad you both got what you needed. Yes. And he asked for what you needed. I think it worked out. Yeah. Eventually he was sentenced. And what was the sentence? He pled guilty to two charges of attempted murder and two charges of gross bodily harm. Uh, Those are reduced charges from the premeditated attempted murder that the district attorney had charged him with. The big difference being premeditated attempted murder can carry a life sentence and attempted murder does not. So this all happened in 2018. When is the first time you spoke to Matthew? It was November or December 
of 2021. So it had been three, almost three and a half years. And he called. I wasn't prepared to talk to him, but I took the call anyway, because I wanted to hear what he wanted to say. I had reached a place in my own journey that I'd gone from initially, why would I ever want to talk to him again? Because I don't know what you say to somebody who's going to be dead or who he expected to be dead to wondering how he was doing and what his circumstances were and how he was doing in his own recovery. I'd come far enough along in my own recovery that I was able to make some space for that finally. Curiosity and care about care. how he's doing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the first call was very difficult. They're never long because he only gets a limited amount of time. I just asked basic questions. How are you? What's going on? And I filled him in a little bit on how we were doing. And it was a short call and it ended. It was so jarring and disturbing to cross that line that I didn't really have a whole lot to say, even though I was ready to do that. Mm-hmm. He started calling a bit more and I was then prepared a bit better to ask things I wanted to know. Are you safe? Are you in a cell by yourself or do you share a cell? Is the person, is your cellmate someone you are cohabitating with fairly successfully? Or are you in fear? What's the food like? Basic things to just see what are his circumstances. And then we got into more complex things about his emotional state, his mental state. He started sharing more about his mental health diagnoses, his medications, treatments, and so forth. So I've gained comfort from learning about his circumstance and from him sharing about himself more openly and freely than he ever did before all of this ever happened. So have those conversations been healing to you? Yes, I've very much benefited from them. And he talks about what he may do when he gets out of prison. He talks about aspirations to learn trades, do schooling and other things while in prison. Uh, so it's been helpful for me back into the parent hat yeah. uh, to, to have communication. And do you sense that they're healing for him? I very much believe they're healing for him. He's had the opportunity to apologize and acknowledge his own contribution to the situation and acknowledge his own mental health issues. And that was something he never would have been able to do before. It's, it's forced him to, to look in his own mirror, which has been healthy for him, I think. He's also written letters, and the earlier letters were containing apologies that I would call half apologies. It was sort of a, I blame you and I blame me, but I more blame you. Later, the letters that came through became true, authentic apologies. And that's been helpful in healing as well, where he acknowledged that he didn't attend to his mental health needs the way he needed to. And what he did was wrong, which I knew he knew what he did was wrong. That was never a question in my mind. I think you've said your forgiveness was almost immediate. Is that right? It was. I knew I had to get better. And I felt if I held on to animosity, anger, negative thoughts, frustration, fury, you name the emotion, if I held on to that, I would be keeping myself in a space where my recovery would be hindered. And I knew I had to go to a place where my recovery was uplifted through positive energy and thought. So I immediately decided for 
my healing and for his healing as well, sort of spiritually in the universe, we'd all be better off if I didn't hold animosity, anger, hatred, or any negative emotion around what happened in my own heart. Which is just a really powerful act. Really. Well, I I didn't know it was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was important. Yeah, but I think obviously you leave space for the anger and the rage and the hurt, and I'm sure there's waves, but to set out that intent that you won't be consumed by that is... I'm not in denial. I know what went on. I know what happened. I know the history, and I it all is real. I firmly believe we have a choice in our feelings and emotions, and I'm going to choose to pick as much positive as I can. There are times when the dark comes up, and as I talked about earlier, you go through it, acknowledge it, appreciate it for what it is, and put it in its place and compartmentalize it to allow me to be free to go do about, go about my day and do what I want to do. What role has humor played in your recovery? Humor helped all along the way. And I can joke about what happened, not because it's funny, but because I can find things that are humorous and humorous ways to say things, to talk about what went on. Well, you told me when people come over, you just diffuse the elephant in the room and say, you can either call it the guest room or the stabbing room. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) We both do that. And we just decided... One of the things we did because everyone early, in the back of their head is going, "Where did it happen?" Right? right. Yeah. Everybody who's never been there is like, "Well, where did yeah. all this happen?" And we decided very early on. It's another one of the things in healing, if you will, that we were going to call what happened the stabbing or the attack. That we weren't going to try to sugarcoat it. We knew people were uncomfortable about talking about it. Yeah, finding the language. Finding the language. I was even tripped up about how do I define this experience in a way that's respectful to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate everybody wanting to be respectful. I get that. But it can put people in uncomfortable circumstances when they're facing something they've never had to face before. And we just decided to be honest and candid and transparent, which is what we do all the time anyway. And so we don't call it the stabbing for shock effect. Although it has shock effect, it's fun. There's the humor <laughs> for you. Uh, we call it that because that's what it was. And I like to think of an event as a fun party that I go to, not a stabbing. Yeah. So I keep events as events and incidents as incidents, which are little small things that go wrong in my mind, and stabbings as stabbings. Yeah. Well, we, even when you were talking about the hospital, who do we call about the incident? I'm like, that seems like it's kind of minimizing the situation. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Small incident is like a fender bender. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what role has spirituality, faith played in your journey? Part of the recovery stems from the fact that both of us have very strong sense of spirituality, that there's higher power. And I got to go visit three times. Not something too many people can say, but quite a few. The concept of purpose is really important to me. And tied in with purpose is spirituality and doing good and helping others. And so all of that fits in together. I don't describe myself as religious. I don't practice any specific religion. I was raised Catholic and I don't participate in the Catholic faith actively. 
I just believe there's a, a power that's greater than what we're doing here as human beings on the planet day in and day out as we go through our struggles. And that helps you feel like there's a safe place to be. A sense of trust. Yes. Yeah. And comfort. And comfort. And peace. Yeah. I know a lot of people ask you, what is Matthew's sentence? It's about 15 years, reducible to 85% in California, so roughly 13 years from the date of sentencing. And I know a lot of people have asked, and I'm asking now, about your thoughts or concerns or fears about when he is released. How do you experience that? How do you think about that? I tell people I'll think about that in 13 years when I need to think about it. Right now, I don't really need to think about it. In general, though, I'm not afraid. I'll figure out how to make sure I feel safe and can feel safe at the time. Part of getting to re-know him is that I'll understand what his perspective is when he does leave, and that's going to help guide my decision-making about how to create a safe environment. Yeah. But... In general, I don't worry about tomorrow until tomorrow. Yeah. Well, that's the best way to live. Yes. One of the things I learned here is we don't have today. Everybody says, you know, we only have today to make sure it's good. I don't have anything but right now. And none of us has anything but right now. I could be gone by the end of this conversation. And I could be gone by the end of the day or tomorrow morning. So I, I live in the moment. And if I'm not doing something in the moment that I want to be doing that's fulfilling for me, then I have to reevaluate how I got to where I am and go somewhere else. And you have also said that you feel both you and Ken have a through line and a thread to your life arc of survival that you guys really have are survivors. So can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I don't... Uh, I'm about to use a word that I don't really want to use. In some ways, we started life as underdogs, being gay men who didn't know what being gay men was when we were children. We figured it out eventually, but you've got to be a survivor in some respects. There's organizations that support youth that are, you know, suicidal because of this issue. It's it's something that's really society in certain ways can make very difficult for certain people. We're fortunate we've gotten to where we are. But there's a survivability and having to come to recognition in terms of yourself in life. So that's an element of surviving. The older kids who are both deaf, that's a, a challenging having children with disabilities. And Matthew who has mental health issues. Disabilities in the family require different skills and capabilities. You yourself know very well. And as a parent, it means you've got a, a different uh, take on the world. What are your greatest lessons on resilience and survival? There's help for you out there through many of the difficulties we've faced over the years, that I've faced over the years. One of the most heartwarming things I've learned is that if you ask for help, it's incredible how much people are willing to help. It took me a long time to learn to ask for help because I was taught as a child, asking for help was a sign of weakness. And I've learned as an adult, asking for help is a sign of strength. It's a sign of self-worth, value, 
self-care. And I have yet to ask someone for help that I can point to that has said, no, go somewhere else. In the smallest of things and in very big things. And even where we weren't asking for help after the attack, the volunteerism of help at points became a bit overwhelming and almost embarrassing. And I hope that doesn't sound the wrong way, but we had to learn again to accept the love and the caring that people were offering because we did need it. We just at times let our pride get in the way and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is whatever is happening and this show of support is occurring. But those moments were fleeting and instead we learned to stay in the moment of appreciation and the feeling of appreciation for what help was being provided. So resilience comes from knowing when and where you do need help and when and where you don't need help and thriving through the places where you don't and asking for the help you need in the moments that you do. I talked about silver linings and a friend of mine talked about platinum linings recently, which I love that phrase. And some of the platinum linings of this and around the resilience is that there's so much love and care out there that accessing it when you need it is so important. Yeah, because it all sort of rose to the surface for you in a really vibrant way of how much is out there. Yes, absolutely. And all along the way, there was so much help from LA Unified School District. If you're kind to the administrators, you got a whole different result than the people who weren't so kind to them. So gratitude, appreciation, openness to help from others when needed are all important parts of resilience. You've also, when we spoke, you were really clear on a conscious choice to not let the attack define you or your life, to not have it be the center stage, the marquee moment of your time here. So talk to me about that, because I think that can also be helpful to people who have their own trauma as they try and put it all in perspective. I'm thankful that before this happened, I felt like I really knew myself well and I knew who I was and that I was able to very quickly realize this isn't who I am. This is a moment in time. It's a happening. It happened in my life, but it's not my life. And I don't want my life work and love to be defined by it. I don't want to ignore it, but letting it take over my identity would not have been true to who I already knew I was. And so I would say, try to learn who you are as best as you can and be as grounded in that as possible so that when bumps in the road occur and difficult moments arise, you have something to turn back to. I can say in my relationship with Ken, when you're together with somebody as a couple for 30 plus years, you hit bumps in the road. And we learned long ago that arguing was not going to solve those bumps in the road, but instead going back to what we were grounded in would. And that was to remind ourselves we like each other and we're friends and whatever's in front of us is not bigger than that. And I'd say it's the same thing with what I'm talking about from the attack perspective. It happened. I don't deny it. And it's not who I am. What is your greatest hope for Matthew? For him to be happy and successful 
whatever the word successful looks like for his capability and, and life context. But I would hope that he thrives in prison and that he comes out of prison and can reassimilate into the world in a comfortable manner where he can lead a life that is as positive of a space as he can get himself to, whatever that looks like. I'm curious about sort of transformation, how you feel you have changed in these past four years, who you are today versus the man you were before the attack. Emotionally, I think I'm stronger than I was four years ago. I think that I am resilient. I have seen testing of that through these events, and I see that I can carry on, and that gives me peace. And I know this is your first time speaking publicly about the stabbing. What is your hope on the entire journey of adopting Matthew, of loving Matthew, of looking for healing with Matthew, the attack, the recovery. I find in your story that you have so much to offer, but what do you hope some of the takeaways or the key messages that you hope people find within your journey? Think positively, be resilient, know who you are. Don't give up hope even out of the darkest moments, ask for help when you need it. Turn to others. Don't isolate yourself out. It also appears with you that the candor and the sharing of your story has been really helpful. That's been very helpful from the very beginning, even with all the friends coming over after it happened and colleagues at work and everywhere we go. It's helpful in some ways to realize how large of a magnitude of a moment the stabbing was by telling people who haven't heard it before and watching the reactions and going, well, I I knew it was big, but, um, and it is big, but I can appreciate being where I am today a bit more by sometimes seeing what people's reactions are. One thing that I find funny is that I've had people say, all along the way, wow, that happened only two years ago, and you're doing great for only two years or three years or four years. And I remember thinking, how many people do you have to compare that to? I'm not sure where, what you think someone is supposed to be doing after two years or three years or four years, but I'm glad you feel the way you do. It makes me feel better about my own recovery. Yeah. Well, thank you for your trust in me and allowing me to play a part in the sharing of your story and your journey and your lessons. Thank you for taking the time to come over, see the house, hear the story, and for considering me for your podcast. It's an honor. Um, We do something at the end, which is lightning round. You ready? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Favorite city? I'll say New Orleans, where I'm from. I love New Orleans. Such good food. Three things on your bucket list? Three things on my bucket list. More travel around the world in the years to come. We're empty nesters still, and I want to get out and see more. A second that's on mind, and I'm 
had it on the bucket list for several years, and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to keep it on one more time because I haven't gotten it done, is to ride in the AIDS life cycle, a 545-mile bicycle ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles over seven days to raise money for the L.A. Gay and Lesbian Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. So I trained for it twice. Twice it fell apart because of the stabbing and because of COVID. Uh, and I didn't go this past year, but I'm still considering what the right time is to do that. Third thing on the bucket list, don't know. My list is short. I feel like now that you've said it on the podcast, hello, <laughs> you've got to do I'm it. I'm looking for donors. <laughs> we, we can work on that. Okay. Best and worst part of living in L.A.? Best part of living in L.A. is Ken is here. The worst part of living in L.A. is traffic. I am most grateful for? Ken in my life. There's so many things I'm grateful for. I live with gratitude. I'm grateful for the work I get to do. I'm grateful for the people around me. I'm grateful for being able to be on this webcast. I'm grateful to be alive and to be able to tell this story. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything. Thank you again. This has been a pleasure. I've loved being in your home and being here with you in person. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And a shout out to our friend Meredith for introducing us. Thank you, Meredith. <laughs> in two weeks, you'll hear from Ken. Get to know him, his life story, and his account of the stabbing. It's a whole different ball game, and I'm excited for you to meet him. It was definitely a rough patch for us, but through the therapy, she suggested that I have to take my feelings towards Matthew and set them aside so you can cope because you want to be there. You love your husband. You want to be in this relationship and you have a son. So I had to learn how to basically ignore it. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound designer is John LaSala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.